High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Well, um, I've been on this radio station now for just over 15 years. Never in that time have I been more angry, more emotional, and indeed more sad. Imagine a mother watching her child's life disappear, her education system destroyed, her possibility of future employment lessened. At night, she hears her child cry in pain, and there is no help. Uh, The children are dismissed as hysterical girls invariably. And then uh, the vaccine. The suggestion is, and I don't know, but I have to ask the question, there is a suggestion from these mothers, damaged as they watch their children, that there may be something to do with the HPV vaccine. Consequently, it has dropped to 50%. Now, the HSE, this huge organisation of thousands of employees with budgets running into millions and billions are being apparently defeated by a bunch of Irish mothers, so the vaccine has dropped. Am I happy that the vaccine take-up has dropped? No, I am not. But then I hear the failed chief executive of the failed HSE, Tony O'Brien, on the radio describe these mothers as emotional terrorists. How dare he? How absolutely dare he call mothers who care for their children, who watch them in agony and pain, how dare he call them terrorists? If we had a Minister of Health in Simon Harris who wasn't in political nappies and in a job way above his if he had a, if he had a shred of courage, which the great party Fine Gael seemed singularly lacking in, O'Brien wouldn't have a job today. O'Brien would be sacked. He'd be taking his belongings home in a cardboard box for calling mothers of Ireland emotional terrorists. What does Harris do? Harris, like a little transistor boy, follows up and says, tells Irish mothers, butt out. He says, how dare he too? Now, this is the same Harris. This is the same minister who, when asked by uh, Michael McGrath of Fianna Fáil about Lyme disease, of which more in just a second, does he understand it? Does he care about it? Does he care about more people whose lives are destroyed? No, he doesn't. He reads into the record a heap of horse manure, which he can barely understand himself, Uh, and ignores the point that one of the greatest scientific organisations in the world, the Centre for Disease Control in Atlanta, has said that that some of the testing for Lyme disease is wrong. The Taoiseach, himself a doctor, dismissed the concerns of Michael Healy Ray as, but sure, it can be cured with a simple course of antibiotics. No doctor, Taoiseach, it cannot on certain occasions. But now they've got a problem. One of the greatest golfers in the world, Jimmy Walker in America, has now come out and said, I've had Lyme disease to the point where I sat down to dinner and wondered would I ever get up again. Matt Dawson, England captain, scrum half, Lions scrum 
in half. Lyme disease, heart failure, heart surgery, facing years of medication to get better. So are, are they all hysterical too? Are they all dismissed by Dr. Taoiseach and Little Harris as somebody who is hysterical and don't know what's wrong with them? What are we doing about it? Absolutely nothing. Where is this a tick, right? And it bites you. And uh, where did Dawson get it? In Chiswick Park, right? The London equivalent of the Phoenix Park. Why does this tick carry Lyme disease? Because the tick is near deer. Anybody tell me where there are deer in Dublin in large profusion? The Phoenix Park. Michael Healy Ray asked a simple question. Should we not have a notice, a warning at, at the entrance to our parks? Dismissed by Dr. Taoiseach and Little Harris as being of no importance. And then the Irish Blood Transfusion Service turns around. Somebody has uh, been infected through a blood transfusion with hepatitis and they say, can never happen again. No implications whatsoever. But there are implications, according to the, the Irish Transport, uh, the Irish Transfusion Service, uh, one chance in two million. In fact, by my calculation, it's one chance in 1.2 million because 1.2 million tests have been done. But there is a point at which no test can find it. Now, you'd want to watch his language, this director of science at the Irish Transfusion Service, because there is an implication. I'm perfectly happy to take a 1 in 1.2 million chance, and so is everybody else. That's fine. But you don't say no when there is a chance, however slim. The problem here is that we are being lectured by the medical profession and their acolytes. And we have been told, shut up, you don't know anything, we know best, you just do what we tell you. And anybody who asks the question is dismissed as hysterical, an anti-vaxxer, or somebody who is out of touch with modern reality. Sooner or later... The question is going to have to be asked. The medical profession just cannot dismiss all these people whose lives are ruined with the simple phrase, well, you've got chronic fatigue syndrome, no cure, don't know how you got it, can't help you, go off and see another doctor. And these unfortunate people, not all young girls, are being shuttled from doctor to doctor and being offered no help, and being offered no help by the HSE. So if the HSE wants to get vaccination rates up, they, they give the people the right kind of information. Not smart, alecky scientists on radio programs. They answer people's queries and they put together something that helps people for whatever reason who are ill. I'm done. The News Talk app is News Talk in your pockets. Download it now. News Talk's High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com, where state-of-the-art business and conference facilities keep you connected in comfort. All right, uh, the text number, of course, uh, and some are already coming in. Thank you for those. Uh, it is 53106, uh, cost 30 cents. You can also telephone, uh, of course, at 1894 Um It's about time somebody backed uh, these parents, listen to the mothers. They may not be as mad as uh, they say. 
Dermot's girl since the vaccine has been unable to attend school for the last two years and I've spent thousands trying to make her life bearable. We are heartbroken. Uh, if vaccines are so safe, why is the Irish government setting up a vaccine injury compensation fund? Is this to pay out terrorist mothers, says Joe. Uh, there is another view, which is, George, you're getting loonier by the day. He was talking about anti-vaccination groups, not Irish mothers. They put other children at risk because of their stupidity. Uh, I think you might discover that uh, these anti-vaccination groups as you describe them, are Irish mothers and Japanese mothers and South African mothers and American mothers and Canadian mothers and mothers all around the world who are concerned. And uh, the uh, uh, Pat Cork says ticks can also get the bacteria from cattle. You can also get the, the bacteria from dogs, you'd be happy to hear. Irish GPs stick their head in the sand over Lyme disease, says Pat in Cork. We deserve better. But anyway, I want to go ahead because um, I'm joined by the head of fiscal policy uh, with IBAC, uh, Joe Brady, and he joins me now. Joe, welcome to the programme. Thanks for having me, George. Well, I, I wonder were you as worried as I was when you heard on a news bulletin that an organisation akin to Irish Water is now the solution for the housing crisis. Did I worry it a tad or not? I, th- I think it probably... It probably wasn't the best sales pitch, but <laughs> fundamentally, it's 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 probably a good idea actually. Um, yeah. So so we've welcomed the reports, right? Yeah. So okay. We've had we've had multiple reports over the last number of years spelling out what the barriers are to delivery of social housing. So there's no capacity at local government. Uh, we have very very small voluntary housing bodies for the most part, and the sector is very fractured. So I'll give you an example. There's about 500 voluntary housing bodies in Ireland, and the on average they have about 50 units each. In the UK, in the Scotland, uh, in Scotland, and in the North, uh, the average would be about two thousand. In the Netherlands, it's about five thousand. So we have a very, very fractured social housing uh, structure in terms of delivery. So it actually does make a huge amount of sense to try and get a unitary body that oversees uh, all the sector, including the voluntary bodies, and tries to. Uh, you know, bring scale and, and capacity into the system. Uh, and we have a good example just up the road. Uh, in particular, the, the, the Northern Irish Housing Executive is, is a great example of, uh, you know, a body that over the last 50 years or so has delivered on social housing in the North uh, in a way that we haven't down here. And crucially, uh, the main point is, is that they've been able to bring in funding from the likes of pension funds into the sector, which means the sector isn't as reliant on government funding. So when, when, when government funding is tight, you don't see a fall off in social housing building. It's just pretty steady across time. And, and that's really why we support it. Um, housing is you know, a crisis at the moment. Um, it's the biggest uh, wage pressure for businesses. And a big driver of that is that a lot of people who should be in social housing um, or should have the availability of social housing are being pushed into the private rental market and pushing uh, and, and, and being pushed out of the private rental market if they can't afford the rent. But I, I was listening to Shane Coleman this week. Apparently, there's an application um, in in for Sandyford for a substantial apartment uh, building, which would uh, build apartments. And uh, suddenly now we have objections from councillors, um, no doubt NIMBY councillors, and that's now being put off apparently until October. So. 
I mean, are we, because of the kind of planning system we have and because of the kind of councillors that we have who oversee planning, can this uh, Irish Water Housing Organisation, can that overcome those difficulties? So, so I guess we've been pushing for this kind of an organisation for three or four years. And the way we'd imagine it is that essentially the, the local authorities would identify the need. Um, they'd still be involved in the planning process, of course. But, but they'd identify the need and then the delivery, which is the key place we're falling down, uh, the delivery would be taken on by this central body away from local authorities. So just to give you an idea of what local authorities are doing at the moment, despite the, the housing crisis and the focus on the sector, in the first nine months of this year, local authorities only delivered about 160 housing units across the whole country. Um, uh, two years ago, they only delivered 45 in, in a full year, so there's progress, but it's so, so slow. Yeah, but and, sorry, Joe, there is. A, I have to go back to the beginning. I mean, you're right that uh, talking about an Irish water-type organisation sort of colour muddies the, the, the actual discussion about what they're trying to do. But I, I have to put this to you, that... They said an Irish water type organisation because that's what they actually mean. That's what that's the formula they're actually going to use. So therefore, what's going to happen is they're probably going to have, you know, a, a poor management. They're prob- they're, there's probably going to be uh, headlines in the paper every week about bonuses paid to the staff. And so on, so on, so on. We do this very badly because you've already said that in Northern Ireland they can do it very well. In the Netherlands they can do it very well. In Scotland they can do it very well. But we do it very badly. So what's, why should we believe that we're going to get it right now? I think one of the big challenges facing Irish water is that the actual policy in itself was was opposed by a huge amount of groups, including, uh, including opposition polit- politicians, despite the fact that it probably was the, the right idea. Um, in housing, you probably are going to get more support from the political system for it because no matter what happens, we need something radical to change the delivery of how we do social housing over time. Uh, a single social housing body isn't going to be something that comes straight away. It's not going to be delivered too quick. We have to learn in terms of setup and all the rest of it from the, the, the Irish water uh, situation that developed as it, as it was set up. But there's fundamentally, if if we give up on, if if we say, look, we can't deliver in the same way that Northern Ireland, the UK, Scotland, the Netherlands, and everyone else can in in housing bodies of this kind of scale, they, we might as well give up in terms of trying to solve the housing crisis. Um, you know, if 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 we say that, you know, there's something fundamentally Irish about not being able to deliver large projects like this, um, then it's a serious serious issue. But I I don't believe that's the truth. I think that it depends on the issue and I think housing is an issue where this would really work and, and it has been proven to work across uh, so many countries that are pretty comparable to us and, and particularly that Northern Irish Housing Executive has been a huge success. Um, it came out of sectarianism in the 60s and 70s, set up in 1969 and at the moment the North has about twice as much social housing per head of population uh, as we do and, and about the right amount. Um, you know, you don't want uh, social housing to take over the market, but there needs to be some because okay. some people just won't be able to rent. But the big problem, by the way, my guest is the head of fiscal policy with IBEC, Sir Brady. But Sir, there is surely a very important point here that we're talking about houses. Now, if if we were talking about even the provision of water meters, something like that, we could we know we could do it quite quickly. But if and and it wouldn't, there's no chance of it happening. But if next week this organisation was set up, staffed, 
computerised, all the usual stuff, we wouldn't see the houses for a substantial length of time. Isn't there? Isn't delivery a key issue when you're talking about housing? It's not some. It's not tap. Well, absolutely, and houses take time, and, and there's crucial issues around funding here and that if you want to take it off balance sheet, for example, like you did with Irish Water, it's going to take more time because you can't introduce bills for houses or, or rental bills for houses that aren't built yet. So it would require significant um, upfront um, commitment by government, and we're, we're already spending several billion a year on uh, on various housing inputs into the system. Um, our view is that you need to put more of that into one single housing body rather than trying uh, across a kind of a hodgepodge of loads of different schemes. Uh, you need to try and focus it through one body that can deliver. Um, but of course it will take time. Um, and uh, that's true in the private sector for housing as well. Houses just take time to build. Yeah. Um, and, and that means that for, for employers and for households and for everyone else, this housing crisis is going to continue for a while yet, uh, even if you get the right solutions in place today. But the greatest damage perhaps ever done to the economy was the Jack Lynch government of 1970, whatever it was, with its appalling economic plan. Um, but that the biggest damage it did was to do away with rates and therefore do away with revenue for councils now and, and put it to central funding. But now if we bring in this new organisation, the Republic of Ireland Housing Executive, if if we bring that organisation in, we are reducing, as a listener reminds me, we're reducing yet again the power of local government. So we might as well just shut up shop at these local governments. They have nothing to do other than put in bicycle lanes or fly flags over city buildings. The reality at the moment really is that uh, for most, not all, and there are some notable exceptions, uh, for most, not all uh, local governments, they are doing nothing on social housing. They've built 160 units in the last nine months, between all of them. Um, so social housing, um, local government has pulled out of it in a kind of an unstructured way. This is, you know, recognising that and moving it to a, to a different body. Um, yeah, know, but sorry, Ger, I mean, sorry uh, for interrupting, but, like, you've left one key uh, uh, responsibility with local government. The, the councillors are still going to have the planning power. So somebody else is building, but they will be they will be tipping their forelock to the councillors to get planning. And, look, planning, uh, you know, and local government will all, always be part of the planning system, and as it should be, um, you know, it's up to voters, and, and particularly, uh, you know, through, through the media and everything else, to, to put pressure on councillors who aren't giving planning to legitimate and, and, and well-planned housing estates because of nimbyism or whatever else. You know, the, the reality is, you know, not all of us want uh, want new housing, uh, new houses built in a green area or new houses built near us, but without that, you are going to have a continuation of this housing crisis, which is impacting on everybody. So, yeah, absolutely, I agree with your point uh, in, in some way, but... That's up to the voters to put the All pressure right, But on. if a cabinet minister spends his time trying to open a Garda station in Sandyford, like if you move that down a couple of a couple of notches to the local government, that's what they're going to do. They're going to spend their time. And Sandyford, as you and I speak, is a classic example of that, where somebody's trying to build three or four hundred apartments and it's, it's just been delayed and delayed by councillors who are looking after their own backyard. Having said that... I have an anonymous email from an engineer with local authority. He says he cannot stress enough how little funding they have received to deal with the housing crisis. 
they're totally underfunded, not to mention understaffed. I'll hold on the second part, but the first part, they're totally underfunded. And and, and that that uh, you know is a case in, in some factors, right? So they've take they've they've got some funding taken away from them, and significant amounts in in terms of the motor tax, water charges, but they've also had delivery of those services taken away from them um, over recent years, and that means that they've had to deliver less. But you know, actually, staffing per unit of, of of output of what they're doing is probably still the same as it ever was. In social housing, absolutely, at a national level, we haven't funded social housing enough, and, and we haven't funded social housing enough, and in the right way for a long number years. But our concern is if you want to set up, uh, if, if you want to really fund it and you want to get the most out of it, you want to get the most bang for your buck out of out of social housing funding, the best way to do it is through this uh, single housing body, which can bring in private funds along with the public funds. At the moment, local authorities are unable to do that. They're unable to borrow in the way that, that you would need and that municipal housing organisations do in other countries because they're so much larger. All right. Um, so, so without without that, uh, and without a single housing body, you're not going to get a, get that scale. And without scale, you just won't get get a solution. Thank you so much indeed. The head of fiscal policy will I back Joe Brady. I don't believe it as a nursery. You know, not not the way we do business. But I we need something um, on the issue of the HSE and the the treatment of people um, who have legitimate worries and concerns. Uh, and Tony O'Brien, the HSE, calling um, mothers of Irish children uh, emotional terrorists. Appalling. A listener says to hear such language being used by the head of our health service when there are important issues of informed consent uh, being ignored. And it's true. Mary Mary then had Lyme disease. Lost 15 years of my life. It was hell. No help. Uh, doctors now don't know how to recognise it. However, I do get a text from Annie. She says, I'm a mother of girls. And I've done some educated research, including talking to doctors. I trust that my daughters are lucky to be able to v- avail of the HIV. HPV vaccination. The types of illnesses these young girls are sadly getting were occurring before the vaccine was available. Many mothers are being scared into not giving the vaccination because of these stories. There has been shown to be no link. It's irresponsible to promote those fears on the radio. Uh, that's a very worthwhile text. Uh, and is it is it irresponsible to call them emotional terrorists? Is it ir- irresponsible by the minister to tell them butt out? Is it irresponsible of the doctor Taoiseach to say that Lyme disease, just a couple of couple of tablets of antibiotics in your home free when people's lives have been destroyed? Is it irresponsible to ignore the information from the uh, Centre for Disease Control in Atlanta? Is it irresponsible to refuse to give adequate answers to members of Parliament who ask them during question time instead of giving a whole lot of bullshit written by civil servants who has little else to do except write a couple of press releases for ministers who actually don't know what they're talking about God forbid, is it time to bring back Fianna Fáil? High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK.
All right, every day you can win brilliant breaks at Clayton Hotels in our competition. You know the group, don't you? They've got 17 fantastic locations in Ireland and the UK. If you're going shopping or it's just a romantic trip or the kids, it's a special place to go. We can give you a two-night family break for two adults and two children in Dublin at the Clayton Hotel Leopard Stand. That means Prosecco for you and chocolates for the kids when you arrive, dinner with wine and both evenings, the great breakfast that Clayton provided in the morning and afternoon tea and one the afternoons um, while you're there. Lewis tickets to go to the city and tickets for Leopardstown Race Day. Uh, early check-ins and late check-ins together with parking all there. So, simply tell me. Leopardstown Racecourse in Dublin is off which major road heading south? Uh, text Clayton, that's Clayton, C-L-A-Y-T-O-N, together with your name and answer to 53106, cost 30 cents. We'll draw the winner later in the programme. ClaytonHotels.com is the place to look if you're thinking on uh, planning a holiday. Now, in the studio with me is uh, somebody who knows something about Aravida, of which I know nothing, but it is Dr. Don Brennan of the Aravida Centre in Dunleary. Um, I, 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 the only thing I have a suspicion here, Aravida comes from the Hindu, does it? You're right, George. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading that somewhere in my distant past. But what are you doing at the Aravida Centre in Dunleary? Well, Ayurveda means the knowledge of life, George, and within you is the greatest knowledge and wisdom, which knows how to create health. When you consider that every three years you replace every last atom in your body, you know how to create health. But because our attention is always without, we lose touch with that innate wisdom. Ayurveda acts as like a mirror to reflect back what's your nature, what suits you in terms of recreation, in terms of lifestyle, in terms of diet, in terms of foods. Um, it's, it's an amazing tradition which looks at us not merely physically, but also in terms of mind and beyond mind, that silent presence of the depth of the mind consciousness, which becomes lively as the intelligence which organizes a body. And the reality is it's an amazing tradition of prevention, George. How do you prevent disease? And how do you go about, if you have become diseased, how do you go about getting healthier? It's interesting that the Hindu tradition uh, sort of brought us yoga and brought us Ayurveda and and, uh, things like that, primarily because they have a great belief in the idea that, that the mind is is part and parcel of the whole healing process or the whole health process. Would that be true? Oh, absolutely, George, absolutely. And when each of us is constructing and becoming our own bodies, each of us can access more insight and wisdom as to what our nature is and what suits us. You see, Ayurveda looks at us in terms of three fundamental processes that we use. They're called vata, pitta and kapha. The language doesn't matter. But for you, George, it would be like you're more pitta and kapha in nature. A pitta brings a very sharp mind, great organizing skill, a very hot nature, passionate, driven, motivated, has to do the job right. A kapha person has great stamina and strength and stability, very grounded, very soft natured in the sense of compassionate and kind. Now, with that nature, George, makes you great in a scrum, makes you great as a businessman. But on the other hand, if you go against that nature and choose in your lifestyle 
to say be sedate and sit at home eating cream cakes or to sleep in 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 the morning or not have adequate stimulation the kapha side of your nature starts to go out of balance and causing you to feel heavy in heart and in head you get depressed sinusitis diabetes those are the conditions you might then be prone to without choosing the right lifestyle well, diet uh, um Without uh, having yet gone to the Ayurveda clinic in Dunleary, uh, and my guest remembers Dr. Don Brennan, without going there, yeah. I mean, one of the problems, whatever my personality is, yeah. or however you might describe it, one of the problems I obviously face is what am I going to do when I stop working? Because the possibility, it's interesting, you know, the possibility exists. I'll be eating cream cakes on the sofa and watching neighbours. Now, if that happens, wow. right? Now, yes. we, we forget whether it will or whether it won't. If that happens, then my health will suffer. Isn't that so? Absolutely, George. So now, can, how are you going to help me when I, I call time on high noon and I don't want to eat cream cakes and sit on the sofa? Well, as the Ayurvedans say, Ayurveda is about adding years to your life, George, and adding life to your years. So what you want, absolutely, is for the pitta side of your nature to have lots of fun because pittas get overheated. And then that overheat can be inflammation, whether it's an ulcer or, or uh, a feeling of frustration and annoyance. On the other hand, chilling out, like fun, like playing with your grandchildren, like walking by the water. Those sort of recreations would keep the pit side of your nature balanced and you would love them because they suit you. On the other side, the kapha side of your nature would need that you keep active, that you keep your fitness level up. And so by virtue of making the appropriate choices in your lifestyle and your diet, you can live long and happy. All right. Now, it is conceivable that I might draw these conclusions mm. without going to you. All yes, right. great, great. Uh, no, I might. I yeah, don't yeah. know because I certainly know I don't want to play golf five times a week or bridge five times a week. I know I don't want to do that. Right. Uh, but... Uh, in terms of people listening, yeah. here is a methodology, yes, Ayurveda, yeah. and, and they go to you in the Ayurveda Centre in Dunleary. So what happens now? What happens when I walk through the door and you say, how are you, George? What happens then? We talk about your health. We talk about your past health. We talk about your current lifestyle. We talk about your diet. And then we start to tune into, OK, what are the changes which would be most relevant and appropriate to you? And then there's all sorts of treatment modalities. You've mentioned meditation and yoga. There's herbs, there's foods, there's recreations, there's lifestyle. You know, people are eating heavy meals at night, for example. That's not why. So this is all right. But this is a consultancy with you. Right. Rather than necessarily I'm going to be sitting there with my, my legs folded underneath me and my eyes closed and dreaming of nirvana. Certainly no? I could teach you transcendental meditation if that was what was the most appropriate thing for you, George. But right. for you, you're laid back enough, maybe. <laughs> it would be good for anybody. But but you're not a vata person. A vata is very light, quick moving. And they need to sit at home and eat cream cakes more. It's different strokes for different folks. Well, you have it there. Dr. Don Brennan from the Ayurveda Centre in Dunleary. My thanks to him. George, and uh, could, could I mention Ayurveda.ie because people need to find information. That's very true. Ayurveda.ie. I'll tell you how to spell it in a minute and tell you now. It is A-Y-U-R-V-E-D-A. Pronounced Ayurveda.ie. Happy and an active life. 
All right. All right. Me and Mahatma Gandhi. Um, George, I heard your annoyance regarding the health system and all my own rant is about the famine-style dental service. All right. Uh, yeah, we know that too. Uh, I agree with much of what you're saying, George, but now it's not time to bring back Fianna Fall. You clearly have a short memory. Um, and uh, Fiona, of course, uh, talks about losing a friend to cervical cancer and uh, she's given her daughter the vaccine uh, and uh, she's very happy about that. Remember Andrew Wakefield and the MMR scandal. The difference between Andrew Wakefield is Fiona. He was doctor one. Two, his um, research was in the British Medical Journal, which gave it authenticity. This is completely different uh, from calling uh, mothers terrorists. And uh, I've just read that text from Fiona, and thanks, Fiona, very much for that. And my thanks to uh, Dr. Brennan. More to come on High Noon. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Uh, Stephen Rush says, get your facts right, George. You're putting lives at risk with your flat earth uh, rubbish. Um, perhaps you might check the facts. We were There is no doubt that the head of the HSE said emotional terrorists. There is no doubt that Simon Harris said butt out. And there is no doubt that Dr. Tichuk Faradkar says Lyme disease was a simple matter of taken antibiotics. I'm going to electric picnics this weekend. I'm there on Sunday with Teresa Lowe. We'll be doing that great quiz uh, program, Where in the World? So do come along. It's in the Mindfield area and we have the News Talk Lounge. So if you want to play, uh, send me a text, george at newstalk.com. Come. So keep an eye on News Talks Facebook if you're not there because we'll have all sorts of videos for you. And send me an email if you want to be involved to george at newstalk.com and I'll see you in uh, Electric Picnic. Now, my guest is a former professor of banking and financial services and healthcare at the UCD Michael Smurfett School of Business. Happily, he's alive and kicking and has his usual strong views. And he's going to talk to me about something called our exit rather than Brexit. It is Ray Kinsella. Professor Kinsella, welcome to the programme. It's a pleasure, George. What's our exit when it's about? Well, it's uh, a summary word that describes the case for Ireland leaving the uh, Europe, uh, the EU, uh, and it's kind of parallel to Brexit. Yeah. So, and you're in favour. Yes, I am. I, I want to be very, uh, very clear here. Um, many people are um, have great admiration for the EU's founding values, and so do I. Uh, Europe, the European project, was a tremendous adventure. But the way I would see it now, George, is that Britain is not leaving Europe. It's leaving what Europe has become. Europe today is radically different to the Schumann-Money plan, to what we joined with Britain and Denmark in the early 1970s. It's different to even the single market. 
Europe has become something very different. And I see that as the reason why Britain uh, uh, is leaving. But I also see a very strong case for Ireland leaving concurrently. Uh, and I suppose the, the, the key issue um, here is that when Britain leaves, who will advocate Ireland's national interest? We have a lot in common with Britain within Europe. Um, we would stand for many of the same economic policies. When Britain leaves, who will advocate those policies? Okay, now, there's a couple of really interesting things here, I think. Uh, and sometimes the interesting also is kind of disastrous. Do you know what I mean? Sure. It can be a great idea, as the Chinese say, may you live in interesting <laughs> times, but they might be great. Now, I think there is, you know, this great thing about the silent majority or the silent minority. I think there's a ton of people out there who don't have a voice, and you may be the first voice, that actually thinks, well, England are our nearest, Brit Britain is our nearest neighbours, uh, part of the island is Britain, uh, we share all kinds of common values, and we'd be better off close to them. Would you advocate, therefore, us uh, joining the Stirling area? Not necessarily, but okay. I think in the earlier part of what you say, you have it absolutely right. Um, there are enormous linkages, George, in trade, travel, history, in agriculture, in small business. There are huge linkages between uh, Ireland and the UK, not least in the whole labour market area. Um, you might say in these times, George, we've grown up together. Now, with what, the UK, with what Europe has become, we really have to stand back and take a decision. Are we better off being in a different Europe where we're small, peripheral and dependent or would it be more sensible for us to look to exit concurrently uh, with Britain to maintain and deepen those ties, but also, very importantly, to develop a new relationship with Europe? I mean, one of the big disappointments that I, I would certainly feel, and I'm sure many people do feel, is that Europe won't reform. I really did think that Brexit was a wake-up call to Europe to become less centralised, to become less unequal, to give people in peripheral countries a voice. But it's not so. Well, now, there's an interesting thing here, because you're a professor of economics, and I remember at the time thinking, and, and seeing it on the radio, why, when we are having, when we have an overheated housing market, why have we got low interest rates and money to burn from banks? And the reason was that the low interest rate suited Germany. So the interest rate that suited Germany was imposed on us. Now, if we had been in the old days, we could have devalued or we could have changed our interest rates. We could have done a million things. But we can't because there's a German somewhere telling us what to do. That's absolutely right. And if you look at the trade data, you see that Germany has an enormous, indeed worrying, trade and current, and current account surplus, whereas the southern peripheral countries don't have that. I mean, you know, when you look at it, George, and you, you consider 
Greece not only as an event but as a metaphor. We've seen in the last four or five years, we've seen a hemorrhage of income, of wealth, and most important of all, of people from a dependent, largely broken Greece to the centre of Europe to um, to Germany. And um, that's telling us something is deeply dysfunctional. Well, now, yesterday, um, I had the former business editor of The Independent, now at Trinity College, head of communications, and um, he was talking, because he has a huge German background, went to school there, all that sort of stuff. He considers that Germany is storing up huge problems for itself down the road, so that if Germany then implodes, as he suggested, might... Uh, because Merkel isn't facing up to the future, then we'll be collateral damage, no? Yes. We will. Um, Well, there will be collateral damage because Europe, as it is at the moment, is not sustainable. The inequalities that are there, the imbalances built into the... uh, single monetary policy uh, into the euro currency. I mean, it wouldn't just be an opinion of mine. It would be held very much by people like the former uh, governor of the Bank of England, a very eminent economist, Mervyn King. It would be held by people like Joe Stieglitz, who was a Nobel Prize winner. But more importantly, it would be experienced by people like ourselves. It is not sustainable. I Where, like, you talk about us as a small country, peripheral, not having real deci- any power in decision-making. What about the, Lat- the Latvians and the Lithuanians and the Estonians and all, who are also small, uh, who are also um, uh, uh, peripheral? Like, uh, in one of those countries, everybody under the age of 30 has, like, disappeared mm. and they have no tax base. Mm. I'm not sure which one three it is, but they have no tax base because all the, the, the earners have gone off somewhere else in Europe. But Europe wasn't supposed to be about that, George. Europe was supposed to be about subsidiarity, uh, which is delegating powers out. It was supposed to be about solidarity. So you would have mechanisms there that wouldn't simply drain peripheral uh, areas of their best and their brightest, but there would be compensating mechanisms there. And there's not. I suppose another thing that is, it's troubling, George, it's um, the air of dependency that hangs over Europe at the moment. I mean, we know that France and Germany play in the premiership and everyone else plays in the reserves. Uh, and that's just the way All it right, is. But now, I, I go down to Cork to see the grandchildren, right? I get down two and a half hours, whereas it might take me five before. You know, we have an infrastructure. I remember Dick Spring, when he was in government, on board, like, we're getting seven billion from Europe or whatever it is. I mean, didn't they give us a ton of money in which otherwise we might well be in, as Yates called it, a, a, a cottage of clay and wattles made. Like, we're all living in great... Houses and everything thanks to Europe, no? Not necessarily thanks to Europe. Europe is and was important to Ireland. But we shouldn't uh, underestimate what we've contributed to Europe. We are now a net contributor to the European budget. Our fisheries constituted a huge transfer to other European countries and a huge value added, huge jobs. Um, so 
Ireland has contributed a lot to Europe and we really shouldn't have this notion of um, uh, aren't we terribly beholden to Europe? Right, so, but, but there is a natural thing though isn't there? That the Irish are natural forelock touchers. That we're, we're, we're a natural kind of, ah, sure, sir, it's great that you're looking after us. Like, didn't Enda kind of represent that in a way? You know, the kind of thing, ah, sure, listen, it's, all, it's great. You know, you know, that's really interesting. The reason I wrote the article, and I might say in writing that I was very conscious of the contribution that people like uh, Professor Tony Cochran and Trinity have made over the years. I'm a great man, and people like Dr. Ray Bassett, the uh, the amb- former ambassador. I mean, they but my, they they've written on this. But my my chief aim was to say, let us talk about. Ireland's exit. Let's talk about Brexit. The notion, George, the notion of negotiations of this calibre going on and we taking all of our aspirations, our opportunities, our capabilities and saying to Europe, you look after them. I mean, why on earth would we cede that responsibility? There is nobody can advocate like you can. All right, well, uh, Professor, a lot of support on the old text machine for you. You'll have to come back. Uh, Ray Kinsley is former Professor of Banking and Financial Services and Healthcare, of course, at the UCD Michael Smurfett School of Business. I'm delighted with the listener who says, George, it's about time we have this conversation on IREXET. Please run with it and expand it, says Dermot. Well, uh, thanks very much to my guest. Uh, we have tons more of course including at 1.30 Bill Hughes will pick an essential song for us High Noon with George Hook thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK more irate stuff coming in for you. How about era today gone tomorrow? I like that one. Rather than Ireland and UK leave, give Germany and France the boot, uh, says Kevin. That's not a bad idea. Ireland uh, either. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for that. Now, uh, my favourite tax man is on the line. It's uh, the head of tax at PwC, Joe Tynan. Joe, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, George. It's great uh, to be with you. Yeah, okay. Panic on the tax floor at PwC last night when President Trump said he was going to cut the U.S. corporate tax rate to fifteen from thirty-five percent. Yeah. Uh, not really. No. I mean, <laughs> we're not too too panicked at the moment. Um, I mean, it is. It's always interesting to watch President Trump. He he said four things yesterday. He said he wants a, a simple tax code, and I think everyone can agree with him on that. He wants a competitive tax rate, and, and he did speak about 15%, but I don't think anyone actually else thinks that's credible. He spoke about tax relief for the uh, for, for, for middle Americans, which is very important to middle Americans, but we in Ireland don't have to worry too much about it. And, and fourthly, he spoke about repatriation, which is we, we've often heard about these U.S. companies who have lots of money overseas, and he wants to make sure that they bring it back. Yeah, but Joe, uh, interestingly, people be for profit who aren't a party that I vote for normally, but they've got an economic advisor called Dr. Brian O'Boyle. Now, he makes what I think is a fairly valid point. 
point that the Irish economy uh, has a few holes in it that if things went the wrong way, like Brexit, for argument's sake, mm-hmm. and now if the Americans uh, aggressively cut their corporation tax, our so-called fastest economy in Europe could take a hit. Well, if, if you're really good at anything then obviously you, 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 can, you, you can suffer from that per, uh, perspective. So we've been really strong in terms of international trade. So they are right in the sense that we have a disproportionate amount of US companies which use Ireland as their foothold in, in, into Europe. We have been incredibly successful in attracting those operations into Ireland and, and when they're here, in growing them. And because of that success... If anything was to impact that, it it does leave you exposed. But it's not just the Americans. I mean, Europe, you know, witnessed the Apple deal. Europe aren't exactly happy about us either uh, because they think we're playing jigs and reels with our corporate tax rate. I I think one of the the things which is, is happening here is that companies have become very much digital, digital uh, type. All, all companies are becoming digital. And and the challenge with digital is it is actually much harder uh, to tax because it, you know, it flows over the, the fiber, it flows over the broadband, and it's completely different to physical products which are being sold and which are, which are much easier to tax at every single stage of the transaction. And if you think of many of the digital products that are sold, be they... Uh, TV shows, which historically might have been on DVDs or records or something like that, they were being taxed in at each stage. So the distributor was taxed, the local shop was taxed, everything like that was happened. In a digital economy, that doesn't happen at all. So uh, the French, for example, are looking and saying, we've got a market of 60 million people who are buying an awful lot of these products, but we're getting very little tax. So you can understand why they are concerned about that, and I, uh, you know, and, and there's very significant concern. Ireland, on the other hand, has been the beneficiary of many of those things because the profit does end up somewhere, and a significant part of it has has been in Ireland, and that is one of the reasons why the corporate tax take in Ireland has increased very significantly over the past couple of okay. years. Okay, now there is another thing. If we go back to America and Trump for a moment, obviously it's a fairly emotional thing to say I'll cut from thirty-five to fifteen, and then all these American companies around the globe because he all he just he mentioned now he specifically mentioned Ireland but he also mentioned France, Germany, Canada, Japan, Mexico and South Korea. Yeah. And so it, it, there's more than us with low corporate tax rates. But having said that, if you look at the American system, they, they because they also have states, you could pay or presume a corporate tax rate nationally and then you could pay a corporate tax rate in Kansas or Texas, presumably, could you? Yes, you, you can. They have a multiple of tax rates. So, so in Ireland, we're quite unusual. We have a single tax rate. So in the US, you've got your what they call your federal rate, then you've state, and then you've often got city. So typically, the, the average tax rate in the US is currently um, 40% for most, for most companies, and that compares to 12.5% in Ireland. But Joe, I mean, you're, we'll have to get a number that I can do the math on, so help me out here. But I mean, if you look at this, and, and a company is making $800,000 uh, for argument's sake, it's going to pay 32000 in tax 
I think. No, 320,000. 320,000. When it comes over to Ireland, it only pays 100,000. So, like, there's a... There's an enormous difference for them. There's there's two hundred thousand advantage, and that's only on eight hundred k. Some of these are making millions and billions. Um, yeah, it's 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 over two hundred k, and and that's one of the reasons. So so U.S. companies have used Ireland to 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 predominantly sell into Europe, and indeed to sell into the rest of the world. So many of them base their non-U.S. operations in Ireland who are who who are, who are selling. Uh, globally, and they keep the money here. And one of the things that the US wants to do is to encourage them to bring um, to bring that money home. There's there's a lot of talk about that. The the US is out of line, not just with Ireland, but they're actually out of line with everyone else. The the average corporate tax rate uh, in the OECD is about twenty four percent. So 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 they're significantly um, they're significantly out of line and. Back in 1986, which was the last time we had tax reform in the US, it's quite a while ago now, but back then, their current rate, which is 35%, was the average, but but, but tax rates have reduced uh, since okay. then. So the US have to do something about that. Yeah, but, but having said that, uh, Joe, the, the distinguished economic advisor to people before profit, Dr. O'Boyle, he does make a point, which is hard to argue with, that we are, in effect, a, a, a tax haven with our low taxes and more importantly loopholes so therefore an economy based on being tax haven if if that gets shut off you're in trouble uh, that, that would be the case if that was correct but uh, you, you can argue back and forth about whether we're a, a tax haven but it's a very simple proposition that Ireland offers you have to have operations here so any of those companies that are based in Ireland have very significant number of employees here, and you have to base those activities here, and they're taxed. Effectively, the deal that Ireland gives is, providing you you, you give us that employment, we are going to tax your profits at, at 12.5%. There has to be some incentive for a company who is, for example, looking to target Europe in general to set up in Ireland rather than perhaps right in the centre of Europe in somewhere like Berlin or, or, or Amsterdam. And, and that lower corporate tax rate has meant two things. One, we, we, we get a, a slice of that pie and we probably get a lot more than uh, we otherwise would have. And secondly, we get very significant employment out of it. Um, it, the the loopholes and there have been loopholes there in the past have gradually been shut down both by the OECD, by the EU, and and by ourselves. I think everyone's in agreement that these companies have to pay twelve and a half percent of whatever the profits they're okay. making in Ireland. But it, it, we we do have a kind of a cavalier attitude. Gold. I mean, you know, if if I'm non-Irish and I I decide to set up a cat food factory somewhere and I say I'm going to have a hundred jobs, they'd say, well, look, we'll give you passports for you and your wife and your children and everything. We we are like rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but we are very aggressive uh, in the recruitment of foreign direct investment. Isn't that so? All countries are. I mean, are some they? of them will, will. All countries are very, very um, aggressive in in terms of that, and you see this in, in many different countries. So you will see in continental Europe, that, you know, they will agree to run a train line to your new factory. They will agree to open a different stop. They will agree that it's much more likely that the uh, particular government will buy some of your product if you set up a, if, if you set up there. 
they have probably a lot more things to play with. They tend to have very significant markets. Um, whereas I suspect the focus in Ireland, because I, I, I think the, the issue in passports, I think that's long gone. I don't think any of that happens anymore. But in, in Ireland, the focus tends to be on tax because we, we, have, we have a couple of advantages. Uh, tax is one. The second is there's an, an, a lot of companies have set up in Ireland have found it successful. We tend to do what we say we will do. And they found that they are able to employ really strong people here who run the business well. And, and that track record counts for a huge amount. It's easy for us to trot out about lots of well-educated people, but the companies that, that, that come here find that to be true, not just well-educated, but good at doing business, good at running uh, okay. business. And, and, you know, yeah, and but it's, it's worked. Yeah, it has. But then, Joe, finally, um, and this isn't your bailiwick, but we can we can get these Americans, we can give them a passport, we can run a train line to their door, uh, and we can uh, give them a low tax rate. But the, the current problem is they'll have nowhere to live. Now, that's not a problem for the head of the tax at PwC, but it's another wrinkle that might well affect the future success of our economy. Absolutely, and we, we have to we have to look at infrastructure, and one of the key aspects of inter- infrastructure is housing, and how you get people uh, housing and transport. Actually, how you, how you get people to work, it is absolutely uh, critical, and, and the government has to, uh, I think, has to address it. And I think it can be addressed because there is actually a reasonable amount of land. Uh, there might be a question as to. Uh, the level of density and also the height restrictions in some cases. But uh, housing and infrastructure are key. You cannot run the economy on tax alone. All right, OK. Maybe PwC might set up a housing department and fix it all for us, Joe. be a great job for you. You might talk to the whiz kids in there and tell them. Thank you, George. <laughs> Head of tax at PwC, Joe Tyden. I don't think he's too interested in setting up a housing department. He knows the problems. All right. I'm going to be talking about whitewashing in Hollywood, but it's a very interesting aspect of uh, whitewashing. And uh, the uh, Egypt is the only name possible given to the uh, idiocy involved in Ireland, says Ireland leaving Europe, says Column. Europe has to remain divided because of the individual countries, but at the same time can't afford to go back to any real military resolutions as witnessed by Yugoslavia, Ukraine and more. It's a long text column. Sorry, I had to cut it short. We've got lots more for you, including my next guest from The Guardian, Steve Rose. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Uh, what a week we're having at Clayton Hotels because we're giving away some smashing uh, trips. Uh, the Leperstone Racecourse, of course, is off the M50 motorway. And Michelle Daly got is right indeed. And um, so she's off on that great trip uh, to um, Clayton uh, Leopardstown. And ClaytonHotels.com is the place to look for all your information. I'm joined now by Steve Rose from The Guardian. Steve, welcome to the programme. Hello. Thank you. Uh, Hollywood whitewashing, that definitely caught my eye. And I thought it had something to do with sort of painting the walls. And then it's a lot more serious than that. 
Yeah, well, this is this is a phenomenon that's been going on for or coming to attention for a number of years, although it's a practice as old as cinema itself, possibly older. Um, basically, technically, it's the uh, habit of casting white actors to play roles, characters who are originally not white. Um, for example, a lot of uh, Hollywood movies have been, uh, in recent years, have been adapted from uh, Japanese, uh, successful Japanese comic books or animations and stuff. Uh, and have been adapted wholesale by Hollywood, but they've changed all the Japanese characters to uh, recognizable Hollywood actors. But it can also apply to, uh, for example, there were movies like The Prince of Persia we had a few years ago. The Prince of Persia clearly being a a character of uh, Arab origin, but was played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who's of a kind of European-Swedish descent, I think. Uh, Or Ridley Scott recently did a a Moses biopic, which is... uh, uh, cast with again with uh, sort of white American Australian Hollywood actors. Uh, no, hold a while, Steve. Um, I mean, I'm glad you got to Moses because, like Moses, for me, will always be Charlton Heston, and that's <laughs> that's half a century ago. Well, that's it. It used to happen all the time, you know, and people didn't really uh, either they their objections weren't listened to or they didn't object so much, but the majority of, you know, majority of viewers didn't really think there was a problem with it. Um, but in recent, especially in the, in the last five or ten years, uh, the minorities who are not being represented in, by this kind of like habit of whitewashing have been kind of vocal about it and saying, well, there are very few roles available in traditional kind of movie landscape for actors of color. Um, be that African, especially in Hollywood, be that African-American, Asian-American, Latino. Generally, those characters, there's very few of them. When those characters do appear and they're actually played by white people, uh, you can see that they've got a reason to be aggrieved. Yeah, it was interesting. I was talking about something else, which I can't remember now, but but I was talking about Hattie McDaniel getting the Oscar before World War Two. I was talking about Gone with the Wind. She got Best Supporting Act- Act- Actress, which was extraordinary. She was the first black person. And, of course, at that time in Hollywood, if you were black, you only played fairly meaningful, meaningless roles as the waiter or the waitress or, or whatever. But then along came uh, Sidney Poitier and Denzel Washington and all these kind of guys, and and they didn't they play roles. Well, I know in uh, the come to dinner with Spencer Tracy, Poitier had to be black, but in a lot of his films, he didn't have to be black. If you know what I mean, isn't that yes. right? Yeah. Well, I mean, a great deal of progress has been made, and if you look at an actor like Samuel L. Jackson, um, a lot of a lot of a lot of characters he's played were originally written. Uh, as white, uh, but then they uh, basically switched it to him. He played Nick Fury in all the Marvel movies, The Avengers and uh, Hulk and everything. Nick Fury was originally a white character in the Marvel comics, but they rebooted the whole kind of Marvel series uh, about 10, 15 years ago, and they made Nick Fury a black character based on Samuel L. Jackson, who then went on to play him in all these movies. Uh, so it can work the other way around, but it's often the default setting is, especially for leading parts, is white. Yeah, but if, 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 I hadn't realized a lot of these movies came from Japanese, uh, uh, either comics or, or uh, cartoons or whatever. I mean, there would be a limited, I would have thought, limited number of Japanese actors in Hollywood, wouldn't there? Well, it's, uh, I mean, I don't have numbers for that. But uh, if you look at the population of, uh, you know, Asian-American people in the U.S., um, 
and the uh, you know compare that to the ratios on the screen. But it's not just about the numbers that are represented. It's also about how they're represented. Uh, and a lot of the time there's a, uh, a danger in Hollywood that they represent fairly stereotypical views. Of I was other just cultures. about to say they, they were all great as a sort of uh, the commandants of Japanese prisoner of war camps a la Bridge on the River Choir or something. That was a real boon for Japanese actors. They must have got a ton of work yes. out of World War Two. Well, that's the, yeah, that's one stereotype. The other Orientalist stereotypes that are pervading Hollywood have been the evil, scheming, Fu Manchu sort of character, yeah. or the sort of wise, ancient Asian mystic who lives on top of the mountain sort of character. You know, a lot of these tropes came again and again and again through Hollywood movies. And, you know, if you're actually an Asian American, you're thinking, well, this isn't really like me. You know, this is something that we're just kind of like a slightly sort of uh, uncomprehending depiction of our culture. But the the thing about the fellow who's making the movie, then the the you know the producer guy, he's got to get fifty million from somewhere. He's got two choices. He can arrive down. He says, "I got Harrison Ford to play the lead," or I've got Chung Wang, who I know you don't know, but but he's a really good looking Asian guy to play this Asian part. The 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 money man then is going to give the fifty million for Harrison Ford, is he not? Well, this is, this is a justification that uh, Hollywood is often used in these situations, um, although a lot of time you kind of suspect it was in retrospective. Um, but the fact is that, as I, as I was writing recently, whitewashing doesn't actually uh, bring commercial value. It's all very well saying. Uh, I mean, the, if we look at Ghost in the Shell, the movie that uh, came out earlier last year, which was the subject of a lot of complaints about whitewashing, it was a Japanese anime that was very successfully uh, uh, kind of made a very successful animation movie. They decided to do a large live-action movie, and they cast Scarlett Johansson as the lead, playing the Japanese character. And they said, well, you know, we've got to cast someone like Scarlett Johansson because otherwise it won't get made if we use a Japanese actor. Um, Ghost in the Shell was a total flop. Okay. Uh, so their economic justification didn't actually work. And furthermore, one of the reasons the producers said it was a flop was because uh, basically every review mentioned that it was uh, the subject of this whitewashing controversy. Uh, reviewers felt, you know, duty bound to mention that this had happened. So, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the people complaining about whitewashing, it actually had an effect on the on the bottom line. Yeah, but I, I'm reminded by Paul that the original character in the Shawshank Redemption was actually Irish, if I, red, and of course was played by Morgan Freeman, was black. And then I interviewed Morgan Freeman recently with Michael Caine about that movie about the bank heist and stuff. And and the character that Freeman plays could have been played by by an actor of any color, but they chose Freeman because he's very good. Absolutely, yeah. So there are, you know, I mean, these are the exceptions rather than the rules. But yeah. it's a good situation where we do have, you know, actors of color who are of, uh, you know, significant box office power enough to influence casting. Um, that's a good situation, you know. And, you know, I mean, some stories, it doesn't necessarily matter about the origins okay. or the ethnicity of the people. There are some stories, and this is what a lot of Asian Americans feel, particularly feel aggrieved about, is that there are stories from their own culture which are being... Uh, co-opted by Hollywood, and then they're being sort of cut out of them. 
Yeah, but if you saw Tom Cruise in Far and Away and you were Irish, you would have been pretty teed <laughs> off, I'm telling you. But having said that, um, it, the other one, really, I think, which is not a whitewashing issue, but, but at first I remember Betty Davis went bananas about it, and successive actresses have, um, with a few notable exceptions. I mean, the parts for women, when they lose their figure or their looks in Hollywood, is very hard to get, unless, I mean, I know there's Judy Dench who's been doing it for 60 years, Helen Mirren and a few more. But the roles for women compared to men in their dotage are remarkably few. Mm, yeah, well, this is, I mean, this is a slightly, slightly separate topic. It is, no, uh, I agree. But, but women but, are hard done by. But, well, I think, you know... White women, not even, forget Asian American or black women. Every woman is hard done by by Hollywood. Absolutely. And when you look at, uh, you know, I mean, Hollywood have been taking quite a serious look at itself in recent years, I think, and sort of starting to uh, acknowledge and address these concerns. We had the, the Oscars So White fiasco a few years ago where there were no sort of actors of color in the, any of the major acting categories. Yeah. Um, and but we, your man didn't deserve it for concussion. Will Smith didn't deserve an Oscar. Great movie, but, but like, so what? He, didn't, he wasn't an Academy Award-winning performance. That's true. But if you follow that argument, you might say, well, why weren't there better kind of uh, performances by actors so, of color? Right. Is it because there's uh, some sort of institutional problem within Hollywood where oh, they yeah. weren't, you know, they didn't have access to the kind of choice roles, you know, etc. You could so, have an Academy Award for the best performance by a black man. Well, I don't think people want that. <laughs> no, I, I know, I agree. Really Tongue in cheek, yeah. Segregation no, no. is not really the answer, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, but there is a, uh, a sort of balance between uh, sort of acknowledging and celebrating our differences and not making too much of them and making divisions here. And I think that's a, that's a fine line. It's a tricky thing. And whitewashing is one of those things where, you know, at the same time as whitewashing, we have... Uh, other mechanisms to include people of color in movies, and uh, but it's it's more that they it's a correction to a situation which existed, which okay. everyone realized. You know, because I, I I think there's there's more to Hollywood negatively than just color, or but but also I mean it's astonishing, nevertheless, to get somebody like Danny DeVito. If Danny DeVito walked into you and I and said, "I want to be an actor, but I'm you know only three foot six and ugly," <laughs> like we would have said, "You haven't got a chance, mate," wouldn't well, we? Well, I mean, there's, there's room for all kind of... Uh, no, but, kind of that, but I mean, for every... Be. No, but Hollywood, for every error it makes in, in terms of political correctness, if you like, it also has had some interesting ones. Yeah, but people with talent. And, exactly. Uh, it's talent, whether that yeah. talent always gets the same opportunity to shine through, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you would never have thought somebody with Tony Curtis's accent uh, could sort of have played uh, uh, a knight in in times of old in England, could you? <laughs> or uh, did he? What was what was the movie where John Wayne played a? Uh, uh, oh, he played a centurion. No, uh, yeah, no. Well, he played Genghis Khan for one oh, thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which did not go down too well. I mean, the no. number of the number of actors who sort of have played sort of act. I mean, even Sean Connery in uh, was it Thunderball, disguised as a Japanese man. Not quite the same thing. No, but um, but a great number of uh, of kind of white actors have sort of still, you know, oh, sort yeah. of uh, taken taken roles which. Uh, 
were not yeah. necessarily within their. Uh, yes, it was the Conqueror. Uh, wasn't that the movie? The one, yeah. It wasn't that that's the movie the where they all got cancer as well, wasn't it? Because they filmed it on a on a former atom bomb site or something. No. Oh, that's right. Yes, in the Mongolian desert or something. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Or what was supposed to be the Mongolian desert? Well, if I was black and they said, "Listen, you're going to get cancer if you do this job," I think I'd say, "I'll skip the job." And the money better we could. <laughs> but it's, um, it's also I was just to point out that um, I mean at, at its best these these things work as a dialogue that you know they were um, they were being criticised for Ghost in the Shell for co-opting a Japanese movie, but uh, when it works well you can you can borrow a Japanese source material like they did with the uh, Magnificent Seven, which was borrowed from Kurosawa's yeah. Seven Samurai. But they didn't make it into, they didn't put all the actors, you know, the American actors as samurai. They made them cowboys. They transposed it in a different way. Yeah. And so that kind of dialogue you can do. But it's when, it's when you just sort of want to erase the kind of people who were meant to be in it and put in white actors that it stops working. All right. Thank you so much, Steve. I enjoyed talking to you. Uh, that's uh, from The Guardian there, uh, Steve Rose, on, on that issue. Uh, Ghost in the Shell failed at a white box office, George, because it was a poor movie. I'm sure it was, absolutely. Um, now, I'm going to Electric Picnic on Sunday. I'm doing game show, believe it or not, with Teresa Lowe. Where in the world? Do you remember that on on the telly, well, it's in the Newstalk Lounge, which is in the Minefield area. So if you're going to Electric Picnic and you'd like to be on Where in the World, email me, george at newstalk.com, and I'll see that you're a contestant. If you can't get there, look at Newstalk's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. There'll be videos and all sorts of stuff uh, about the weekend because everybody's down there everybody who's anybody on News Talk will be there High Noon with George Hook thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK It's time now for Bill Hughes and another essential song. We vary, I think it's fair to say, between the sublime and the ridiculous. Uh, Occasionally, I get so excited, so thrilled. It's such an enjoyable 20 minutes. And then periodically, you, the listeners, hear a loud thump in the middle of the show as my head hits the table in utter disbelief at what I am listening to. So, Bill Hughes, will my head be hitting table or oh, will I be tapping and dancing? What a build-up. What a build-up. Will um, I be tapping and dancing? You should be tapping and dancing because right. there is a great beat to the song I've chosen. Good start. Tremendous beat. Um, tremendous use of piano instruments. It's got yeah. a lot of fusion. But... I think ideologically you'll fight against me on this one because of where it comes from and what it's about. And the date straight away, I mean, it's post-1980, so straight away you'll hate that. Straight away. Yeah, yeah, Straight away. So the listeners understand your prejudices and and so do I. But sometimes I just have to say, uh, damn it, I I really want to include this song because this song is essential for me. Now, you may like the song, um, but I think I won't though. If it's post nineteen eighty, I don't think <laughs> See, I will. So then, then that's kind of so ridiculous that I can't that think about again. it. Okay, okay, there you go. Go on. Okay, what is it? I, I'm going to name a guy. Okay, Paul Weller. Never heard of him. See. See, this is 
terrible. This is sad that you'd never heard there of him. There was a fellow called Weller was a cop <laughs> and he was a kind of a million dollar man kind of cop. Robocop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't the actor called Paul Weller? Yes. No? Yes. Is that, it that him? No, it's not him. Oh. No, no. All right, okay. It's Paul Weller. I like Robocop. Paul Weller has had many incarnations. Right. Uh, in the 70s, Paul Weller was the driving force of a wonderful an extremely successful band called The Jam. Right. In the 80s, he was the driving force behind the Style Council. Right. And then from the 90s to now, he is Paul Weller. And right. he is revered in the music industry. He is revered by critics and he's adored by fans. People who love music Love Paul Weller. I, hold on now. You've mm. used two words. I haven't got my dictionary handy. Mm-hmm. But like revered yeah. and adored. Hold yeah. on. Yeah. We're talking about some fella who's just singing for a supper. You know. No, he's not, a writer. And not, he's, 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 not he's talking to one of the four evangelists. He is called the Mod Father <laughs> because he brought the whole mod movement back into uh, popularity. Yeah. Um, and the song I've chosen is from my favourite incarnation, which was the 80s, which was the Style Council, Council. and the song is called Shout to the Top. Okay. Now, I know that all over the country people have just punched the air and gone, yeah, because they love it. <laughs> I know they have. Whereas your head hits the floor with disappointment. But What's it called again? Shout to the Top. Paul Weller. Paul Weller. The Robot Style Council. Man. No, different Paul Weller. So... It's an English band, obviously, uh, and the song was composed by him. And they formed in 1983, Paul Weller. He got together with a a couple of friends, Mick Talbot, who uh, was the keyboardist and had been previously a member of Dexy's Midnight Runners. And this band enabled Weller, post the jam, to move in a more soulful direction. And then the lineup at the time was completed uh, by Steve White on drums and the beautiful, stunning vocalist DC Lee. Beautiful black singer. Do you remember her? She at the time was Paul Weller's uh, wife. And they. DC Lee. DC Lee. D E E. That's one name. Then the letter C. Right. And then oh, the name Lee. Not like Washington. DC Lee. No, no, no. So but she, hold a minute now. Yeah. Hold a minute. Because yeah. there is one thing I understand here, I mm-hmm. think, which mm-hmm. all the people you have punching the sky around Ireland mm-hmm. at, at the prospect of listening to your man, you said he brought the mod movement back. Yeah. Now, the original mods were in 1960. Yeah. There were mods and rockers. Yeah. And the mods dressed a particular way. Yeah. And they used to have running fights with the rockers uh, in places like Brighton and Bournemouth yeah. and places like this. So yeah. I know what the mods are. And it was is a, he one of them? Uh, he's not a fighter. He no, just, but uh, is he one that dressed? He would, he, would, he would have brought that back. All I right, mean, okay. he said later, I saw that through becoming a mod, it would give me a base and an angle to write from. And that this we eventually did. We went out, we bought suits. We started playing Motown and Stax and Atlantic covers. I bought a Rickenbacker guitar, a Lambretta GP150. And I tried to style my hair like Steve Marriott, Circus 66. So that was his, that yeah, he well, decided that was his image. Yeah, well, I coming from okay. now as a mod. Okay. And I remember the Lambrettas. Yeah. So he was born in 1958. 
Uh, he's, he's not a kid. No, he's not a kid. Born, He'll be 16 next year. Yep. And, uh, like, he has achieved fame in punk rock, new wave, mod revival, uh, and then R&B. So he has a, a very broad uh, okay. church. The Daily Telegraph said of Weller that apart from David Bowie, it's hard to think of any British solo artist who'd had as... Ha, ha, who's had as varied, long-lasting and determinedly forward-looking a career. Well, now, hold a while. Yeah. If the Daily Telegraph says he's okay, yeah. that's okay by me. Okay, and then the BBC described Weller as one of the most revered music writers and performers of the past 30 years. And in 2012, Sir Peter Blake great artist, who was deciding to celebrate the British cultural figures of his lifetime by reimagining the cover of Sgt. Pepper's oh, yeah. and by putting all these cultural icons in it. He chose Paul Weller to be in it as well. So there's a lot of people think Paul Weller is a good, right. a good Yeah, but, but I mean, it's still 1980s though. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I still can't imagine I'm going to like this. When people told me... Not that, that I'm biased in the slightest, but no. I just don't think I like it. When people told me there was a scientific phenomenon known as the black hole, I didn't realise <laughs> it was in your head. I thought it was actually a celestial no, body. No, no. <laughs> So the when just to go back and give us a little bit of backstory, the jam that yeah. he came from, um, they were formed in Woking in 1972. Now... They had 18 consecutive top 40 hits in the United Kingdom and then they broke up in 1982. But they were rejecting the influences of uh, the the punk image while embracing the fact that music needed a new energy and a new... Uh, yeah, it's interesting like, to come from Woking right, in Surrey, which is a pretty middle-of-the-road kind of place. Yeah, and out of that came... The, the the hit and it's funny when they broke up in 1982 the record company released their first 15 singles again and all of them placed in the top 100 so there's there's a huge appetite for stuff to do with the jam there's a huge then the now, style yeah cancel. but the but the jam had hits like down in the tube station at midnight the eaton rifles going underground town called malice like these are all, and if you think of the soundtrack of the fabulous movie Billy Elliot, there's so much of this music used in that soundtrack. Um, and will we listen to the song and just let you get a feel of it? Now, just go before we yeah. leave Billy Elliot, mm. this is about the ballet dancer who was a footballer or something. Uh, no, he was he was a young footballer who became a ballet dancer. He was a young kid from the streets during the miner strike, and his dad was a miner. All right. Uh, so, uh, but I want to tell you, I want to come back to that because it's key to Paul Weller later as All well. Right. Mm. Do you remember you did me an enormous favour by playing American Patrol? I yeah, did, yeah. Which wasn't a song, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Just if you can find it, and mm-hmm. finding it for you is hard, mm-hmm. if you can find it in your heart, mm-hmm. right, to excite me another day, mm-hmm. there's another wonderful one from Brast Off, right? And um, he, he, I love that movie. Yeah, and Ewan Pe- McGregor mm. and and Peter Postle. Yeah, right, the late yeah. Peter Postle. Right, and this girl comes in. She's a corner player, and she's also in management in the mine because they're mm. going to strike. And then she talks about this piece of music and the way Postle 
it says it. It's like orange juice, but it's actually something called whatever it is, but it's not orange juice, you know? Well, there is a musical track called Orange Juice. Yeah, but it's called something. something Anyway, you'll find it. Okay. But it's just magnificent. So I might do that someday. I've made a note of it. For my birthday or Christmas or something like this. So anyway, this is Style Council from the 1980s, a town called No, no, it's called Shout to the Top. (laughs) It's called Shout to the Top. Does it make any difference? Yes, it makes a huge difference. I'm dying for you to hear this. Well, I'm prepa- I, I'll approach it with a somewhat open mind. Well, it's definitely not a town called Malice. He, 45 times he told me it shout to the top, so I get that. Uh, it's Peter Weller. 
I all didn't, well. <laughs> I did. I didn't hear a word from DD Marriott or whatever her name DC is. DC Lee. I couldn't hear her at all. And I'm really into backing groups. I like backing groups. Couldn't hear her at all. However, yeah. I adored the piano player. Yeah. No, I adore the piano player and I really enjoy the piano. Uh, there's a bit of rib beat to it, all right. Can't understand the word of the lyrics, obviously. I don't know what he's talking about. He would never have made it with Gilbert and Sullivan, that's for certain. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> he, he, I, I'd give, I wouldn't give him enough points to get into remedial gardening in DIT Ballina Clash. So you're giving all the credit to Mick Talbot on the keyboard. Yes, okay. correct. Okay. And I won't be listening to it on my next trip to Cork. You won't? No. I can imagine you on a on a by on no. one of those lovely no. bypasses no. with the wind in your hair and your headscarf no. blowing, you just look great at the Go door. On. The what open. else have you got to tell well, me about this guy? You see guy? the thing about this guy is, right? His father worked as a taxi driver and a builder. Um but the father was so proud of what Paul was doing. And yeah. the father uh, had a bit of business acumen behind him and he started to manage the jam and then he started to manage the style council and he looked after their financial affairs and really e- well. everything went hunky-dory that way. So Paul had huge respect for builders, taxi drivers, that kind of thing, because the first places the father used to book him into was the working men's clubs. Oh, yeah. And he, they used to, when they were starting out, they used to play covers of Chuck Berry and Little Richard. and So they honed their craft by learning from the best. And then Paul sort of pulled it all together to become this great songwriter. So, you know, uh, many of the Style Council's early singles, they, they did well in the charts in the UK, but it was only when they released songs like My Ever-Changing Moods and You're the Best Thing, that they hit America. So stuff started to go really well for them then. Now in Australia, Shout to the Top went straight to number one and stayed there. Australia danced to that in 1984. And in 1984, uh, when Weller was just like, with the jam behind him, the Style Council in full throttle, when Do They Know It's Christmas, the Band-Aid single was being put together, he was one of the first people that Geldof called and asked, would he be oh, part he of it? Oh, he was in that. He was in that as well. Oh, really? And I thought that the key on that was your man, uh, Boy George. Oh, no, Boy he? George, yeah. He and Bono and Paul voice. Young. And, and yeah. no, but Boy George's voice in that, I thought, was Boy George's voice is brilliant in that. So Did we ever play that? We have done, yes. Okay. At Christmas. So, Play it but, again this but in, in December 84, Weller also put together his own charity ensemble called The Council Collective to make a record sold deep to raise money for the striking miners and for the family of David Wilkie. Now, David Wilkie, not the Olympic swimmer. David Wilkie... He was the Welsh taxi driver who was killed during the miners' strike when two striking miners dropped a concrete block on the taxi, yeah, from a footbridge onto his taxi while he was driving a strike breaker to work. And the attack caused widespread revulsion and the extent of the violence in the dispute was just escalating. So the two miners were convicted of murder, the charge was reduced to manslaughter on appeal and it became a leading case on the issue of the difference between the two offences. 
And Paul Weller was so exercised about this that he wanted the family of the minor to have some, or of oh, the, taxi a taxi driver, driver yeah. to have some money as well. So, you know, he was a, an all-around sound bloke. But he has been celebrated. Like, he's received four Brit Awards. Yeah. Uh, twice Best British Male. And in 2006, the Brit Award for an Outstanding Contribution to Music went to Paul Weller. Now, that's gone to people like Van Morrison and like people that you probably are not crazy about. He's revered. He is revered. revered. And that's what I'm trying to get across. He's revered. Nay, loved. (laughs) Yes, I would say so. But also for his great sense of style. And he has, he he tours, like he's an exhausting character in the sense that he just manages to do so much. So. You tried very hard but failed. Anyway, <laughs> shout to the top. Paul, Paul Weller, revered and loved uh, by all and all of you out in the street punching the sky for yet another essential song from Bill Hughes. Can keep your punches to yourself because he'll be back next week. And if he doesn't come back with a song that I agree with, he's sacked. All right, today's show, as always, brought to you by Maggie Doyle, Alex Russo, and Kira Courtney. I will, of course be back tomorrow particularly with Here Come the Girls Bill will be back next Thursday to Michael Quilligan on the Sound Desk my thanks good afternoon